Welcome to the World Impact Ministries Sermon of the Week with today's message from our special guest speaker. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, we need to get rid of some of the silly stuff first. Um, I know that there is the great temptation uh, to turn and say he has an accent. I had a church in Connecticut for 12 years, uh, four and a half thousand people who used to say he has an accent. And I used to gently explain that I don't, that being British, I don't have an accent. You, on the other hand, you do. And don't, don't worry too much about it. It's your country! But it's my language. And we're going to look together in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to look at the first five verses. Uh, I'll move on from there, so if you keep your Bible open at, at Acts 9, that will be helpful, but we're not going to read the whole passage because I don't want to exegete the passage. I want to talk through the theme with you this morning. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that word is truth. So we pray that you'll speak to us from your word this day, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you, and I'm really grateful for the opportunity of being here. Um, we don't know each other. Uh, those who do will now tell you what Clive will say to you, because he'll say, there are four things that God laid on my heart to say to you, and I'm going to give you four things. Uh, if you've got a pen and paper handy, then that will be useful. But I simply want to give you four things that I think God wants to say to you this day. Um, the four things are necessary for one purpose only, and that is if you want to become a people who will rise up and see this world changed with the love and grace of Jesus. If you want to change a little bit of this world for Jesus, then four things have to happen to you first. It's just the reality of life. It's the reality of life in the kingdom. It's the reality of life in the Holy Spirit. One of the problems is that we are living in a culture, in a world that tries to baptize its culture. It tries to take what we would do, what we would think, and make it Christian. Now, that's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a very dangerous thing for a preacher to preach against it, because it is so common. When I retired from uh, my church, my wife and I went to North Carolina, uh, and we were told almost immediately we arrived when we went to the store. We're all Christians here. Well, that was interesting because if you live in Connecticut, 4% of the population are believing Christians. 
In the US, the figure is 40. So North Carolina is uh, one of the sort of 40% brigade. Uh, we came from the 4%. And so my wife was amazed to be told that we're all Christians here. So she asked what the uh, shop assistant meant and was told, well, we all take our shopping carts back when we're finished. So Ruth nodded and wondered where Jesus was going to feature in this definition of the faith and was then told, and we, none of us, honk in traffic. Feeling that was a, a somewhat deficient answer. <laughs> One of the problems is that where we live, that's generally the opinion. We are living in a world that has got it wrong. We don't think. I, was, I, I made a tweet in my Twitter account yesterday, and it, it's creating a little bit of uh, ruckus. Uh, all I did was point out the fact that it's a little odd to be in a, a culture where the same day, uh, our Christian news media can report these two facts. One is that Iraq is getting... Meanwhile, 18 Iraqis were allowed to come as refugees. A refugee, not an immigrant. A refugee is someone fleeing for their life. 18 Iraqis were allowed to come as refugees to the US last year. 18. In the whole year, from the whole country. The fastest growing church in the world is Iran. There is no church in this world growing faster. It grew by 19% last year. Now, I've been working with the Iranians for 30 years. So I'm fairly used to what's going on there. Last year, we allowed five Iranians fleeing for their lives to come into the US. And yet this country was born of the British. Let's get all of this, you know, we, we need to get our history right and we need to stop baptizing our culture. We don't like to think of some stuff, but it's true. You may say, he's gonna be political. No, I'm not, I don't care what political party you vote for or background you come from. I'm concerned about the people of Jesus and this world where Jesus has put us. I'm concerned that this world needs Jesus and that he alone is going to touch and transform our planet. And I'm concerned that we stop doing what the world thinks we should do and start doing what he wants us to do. Because if we don't, we're going to get into big, big trouble quite soon. So, I'm bothered. <laughs> That's why you can see why the tweet is creating some interesting reactions. So far, nobody has said anything nasty. I'm not going to get away with this one. But it's important that we're honest. Did you know that only 18 Iraqis, almost all believers, were allowed in here? Five Iranians from the fastest growing church in the world. There's probably a million Iranians 
worshipping together today. And a million outside Iran because they've been exiled. But those inside Iran will be meeting in tiny little house churches or meeting as uh, basically internet believers in an internet church. Because that's all they can now do. I remember the old days of being able to preach in Iran. And behind locked doors and barred windows. But at least you could do it there. Now, it's fearsomely dangerous. What normally happens to believers when they're arrested? They're thrown generally in the Evan prison in Tehran. The first thing that happens to them is they're blindfolded. The second thing that happens to them is they will be put in the general prison. They'll be kept there for five or six months. And then ultimately they'll be released and immediately exiled. They're never allowed back in society. Generally the crime is preaching Jesus. Bringing someone to Christ. And seeing God at work. And I've seen too many brothers and sisters from that background. Now, when I look at what we have as faith, and I look at what they have as faith, sometimes I commit the cardinal sin of daring to suggest that we need to learn the reality of true faith from our brothers and sisters, largely in the Middle East, because they've understood more than we have. So that gives you the background. Are you all right? You're still there. Can you live with me? You realize that I'm not interested in politics. I'm not interested in who you vote for or anything to do with that. I'm just concerned about who you worship. And I'm concerned about who you worship and what that worship means to you. And I'm concerned that we ought to all be fanatics for Jesus because I don't think there's anything less that he requires. And so I want to give you just four things that will make you those kind of believers. Is that going to be okay? Can we live with that? The first one is this. Saul of Tarsus is on a Damascus road because he's run out of Christians to persecute. And so the Jerusalem authorities have sent him with letters of commendation to go to Damascus. And as he goes on that road, a light shines. And he lands flat on his face. The first thing, if you want to really love and serve Jesus, is will you stop walking? Limping is helpful, but preferably land flat on your face. Because that's where God can use you. He does not use people who are walking and asking him to bless them in their walk. He blesses people who stop trying to walk. And have learned what it means to just be flat out on their faces before a living God. What, what happened to Saul of Tarsus? You see, I'm, I'm fascinated. Because if you go back a couple of chapters, he is not persecuting Christians. He's watching the coats of those who persecute Christians. So why, as Stephen is dying and Saul of Tarsus isn't throwing a brick at all, he's just watching coats, what turns him into the one who leads the assault on the believers? Now, I'm now going to be really offensive to the men here. 
So guys, stop throwing the idea of throwing anything at me, all right? But the reality is that Saul of Tarsus was a real man. The problem was that he knew Christians were, were right. The problem that a man has is not knowing that others are wrong, it's knowing that others are right. You can handle knowing that they're wrong, you just can't handle knowing that they're right. Uh, ask the wives. The problem is when a man knows he's wrong. Because men really struggle to acknowledge. I mean, when did your last husband turn to you and say, darling, I'm sorry, you are right. I am wrong, as is so often the case. And I want to acknowledge that you're right and I'm wrong. That's not normal male language. It's not what we say. And that was the problem on a Damascus road. The problem was that Saul of Tarsus watched Stephen die. While Stephen was dying, his face shone. While Stephen was dying, he forgave those killing him. While Stephen was dying, and Saul is just watching the coats, he sees Stephen's face lifted to heaven, seeing the one who is seated at the right hand of his father, ready to welcome him home. Saul of Tarsus knows that Stephen is right and he is wrong. You may say, please, will you give me some biblical evidence for this? Sure. Why does he stop watching coats and start leading the persecution? The only reason was that he saw Stephen die. And what it got in Saul of Tarsus was the reality that he was wrong and Stephen was right. Determined not to admit it, he starts trying to beat it out of the believers. If you could go to the Evan prison in Tehran, you'll see exactly the same. It is not that the Iranian secret police know the Christians are wrong. It's that they know they are right. And that's the problem. And that was the problem on that Damascus road. What does God do when you know in your heart that you're wrong, but you won't admit it? He lands you flat on your face. It's all that can happen. And so Saul of Tarsus lands flat on his face. You may be wanting to say again to me, give me some Bible. Show me that's right. Sure. It's the most stupid verse in the whole of Scripture. There is no more stupid verse in the Bible than Acts 9, verse 5, where you read, Saul sees a light shining all around him, lands flat on his face and says, Who are you, Lord? Answers his own question. How could he do it? Well, he'd known for months. He'd known since Stephen died. He just needed an encounter with the living God. What the Lord is waiting to do is to get you flat on your face. So you're not going to have him and everything else. You're not going to have him and a nice orderly life. You're not going to have him and keep him at arm's length. 
you're not going to have him in any way other than complete and total surrender. I am tired of the gospel that we preach because I'm not at all sure that I believe it. Get, get worried, bro. These four spiritual laws, I mean, I used to love Bill Brighton. I knew Bill, but I'm not sure about the four spiritual laws. We are told today to believe in Jesus. Really? Really? Scripture says the devil believes in Jesus. Does that make him a Christian? We are told to accept Jesus. Oh, I'm British. I mean, how absolutely sporting of you. You'll accept Jesus. That's really nice of you. Where do you read that in the Bible? It's nowhere. The nearest you get, the only time you get the word accept is, will Jesus accept you? It's not, will you accept him? What difference would accepting him mean? He is who he is, whether you accept him or not. Your accepting him won't make any difference. So we're, it's suggested that we should receive him. Well, that gets nearer. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Yeah, I'm aware of that. The problem with it is it was written to a church asking if, he'd allow, if the, he would allow him back in. It was the Laodicean church where I will be standing next week um, with a, a group of Americans and explaining what it really was like uh, and what they should do about it. It's now the largest Iranian church in the world. 700 believers will be meeting at uh, Denzili today, which is Laodicea, Laodicea uh, from biblical days. So if accepting Jesus won't make you a Christian, and believing in Jesus won't make you a Christian, and receiving Jesus doesn't make you a Christian, what does? The answer is that my Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, that's the one advantage that uh, those of you who are British have. You're used to monarchies. You get the idea that somebody should rule over you, and that's acceptable. And the whole gospel of the kingdom is a message of surrender. You surrender to Jesus. Now, for those of you who are getting worried about the last bit, let me pull it back into reality. If you surrender to Jesus, you'll believe in him. But the belief is more than just academic. If you surrender to Jesus, you'll accept him. Not to live alongside you, or to, just to help you and support you, but you'll accept him to be the Lord of your life and the king of your existence. If you surrender to Jesus, you'll receive his love and his life and his power because you'll know you'll never get there on your own. And if you surrender to Jesus, you've actually got what it really means. It means to put your life under his authority, to do what he wants you to do, to go where he wants you to go, to say what he wants you to say, to be what he wants you to be. That's what a Christian is. Not someone who takes a shopping cart back Good thing as that may be. Or someone who doesn't hoot their horn in traffic. I must learn that one. But <laughs> the reality is, is so straightforward. It's someone who surrenders to Jesus. 
On a Damascus road, Saul of Tarsus lies flat on his face and surrenders. And that's what made him a Christian. But the second thing, if you've landed flat on your face, the second thing is you've got to be blinded. The greatest gift that God gave to Saul of Tarsus on that Damascus road was to blind him. And the greatest disadvantage that most of us have is that we can see when we shouldn't. Now, if you're having trouble with your eyesight, you have my sympathy. Mine's not. Gets up on that Damascus road and doesn't know where he's going. Doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't know what the future holds. Doesn't know what it's going to look like. It's the greatest advantage you can have as a church. If you know where you're going, I worry. If you don't know where you're going, that's a good idea. If you don't know what the future is going to hold, that's fine. If you don't know what tomorrow will bring, that's great. If you're walking blind, that's absolutely wonderful. Saul of Tarsus is led by the hand to Judas's house in Straight Street. There he can begin a whole new life, but he starts it blind. Most Christians aren't blind, they can see. Consequently, they work out what they're going to do for God, and then tell him and ask him to bless it. That is really difficult. It's much better to come to the Lord and say, I haven't a clue where we're going, what we're doing, or anything else, so therefore, Lord, I'll go. I remember trying to stand up for the first time years ago in a New England church and say, God doesn't want you to know what to do for him. In fact, God doesn't want you doing stuff for him. He wants to do stuff in you. What he really wants to do is he wants to do things through you. It's not about what you know and understand. It's about what you're open to receive from him. The less you know, the better. The less you control, the better. The best, less you have your hand on it, the better. God wants you blind, unable to do it for yourself just needing him to do it through you. And that's amazing and incredible and fantastic when he can break out like that. You may say, oh dear, I'm getting really worried. Is this guy actually safe? Well, I think David's nodding enough for you to look fairly confident. It's called the doctrine of the crucified life. It's nothing new. It was around from the early church. It's what Jesus preached. There have been moments in history when God's people have started preaching it again. Uh, A.W. Tozer, Andrew Murray, John Wesley, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, D.L. Moody. These are those who preached the crucified life. Turn your television set on, you won't see it. It's not popular today. But the message of Jesus has always come and die. My Jesus preached the gospel seven times in Scripture. Every time it's the same. Every time it's very simple. Let a man deny himself. 
take up his cross, always come and die. Then you'll live. I used to work for an American, um, an amazing guy. Uh, he came to my theological seminary, and I was a bad lad. I'd been converted on the streets of the East End of London. Uh, and this guy arrives in the seminary, and uh, I was the editor of the student magazine. So I asked if I could get an interview with him, and they allowed me to. So I did an interview with this visiting preacher. And it was fantastic. You know, it was great. I got the interview in about 10 minutes. I finished. And then his aides were knocking on the door and saying, come on, you've got to go to London Airport to meet uh, Lady Bird Johnson. Anyone remember Lady Bird Johnson? Wife of Lyndon B. Johnson. So the, 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 the battering on the door is there. And at that time, the preacher said, well, of course, with all that God is doing in the world, uh, what's that? I'm British. We don't believe that God is doing things. Did things a long time ago. We live on a memory. God doesn't do things now. And the preacher said, yeah, if you look in Latin America or Black Africa or Southeast Asia, God is at work. Great miracles. Tens of thousands coming to Jesus. World's being transformed. Really? Why have I never noticed these things? No one ever told me. I was only a believer for a few months before I went to seminary. and I didn't know God was doing anything, did you? So I, I, I was mystified. Meanwhile, come on, you've got to go to London Airport. And the preacher says, I'm busy. And the noises outside were restrained. He said, what are you going to do with your life? I said, I'm going to teach. I said, really? He said, I said, yeah, I've got it all planned out. He talked about a God who wants to get rid of the plans. He talked about a God who wants to take you blind and walk with you. He, talks about, he talked about a God who could do what would be humanly beyond the imagination. After a few minutes, there was a somewhat feeble knock at the door to remind him that he was needed. He turned to me and said, can I pray for you? I said, I'd love you to. That was the moment I got my call to ministry. How long ago was it? That was 48 years ago. When he prayed, he got up, shook hands, walked out of the door and went to very late to see Lady Bird Johnson with no apology to his staff because he'd done what the Lord had told him. I'll always be grateful to Billy Graham for those moments. Guys like that don't come very often. When he died recently, the family asked if uh, Ruth and I would go to the funeral uh, as the guests because I'd worked for Bill after that and watched God work, which is what Saul of Tarsus was going to discover, that when you land flat on your face on the deck, 
when you're blind and you don't know where you're going or what you're doing. And God could do amazing things. But thirdly, when he gets to Judas's house in Straight Street, he sends an Ananias. And God comes to Ananias and says, I've got a job for you. Saul of Tarsus, Judas's house, Straight Street. He's praying. You better go and pray for him. <laughs> Poor old Ananias. Excuse me, Lord. I hate to tell you this. I realize I am only a small fish in a very big pond. And I know that you have many more important people than me. But you've probably overlooked the fact that this guy has been sent to take Christians like me bound to Jerusalem, and that you could be losing one of the few servants you've got if you expose me to such danger in this way. Don't you think there might be another way of achieving your purpose? I love the gentle way the Lord deals with it. He just looks at Ananias and says, Go! And when Ananias gets there, the opening words he uses are, Brother Saul, he's learning something. He's learning that we're there for each other. He's learning that God wants to use us each to support each, each other. He goes and prays for Saul to receive his sight, and he baptizes him. And he probably dined out on this one for the next 30 years. Have I ever told you about the time I met Saul of Tarsus? Yes, many times. And how God used me in a special way. Yes. It's a lovely story, but God takes his Ananiases and uses them. And he's got jobs and roles for all of us. When the, um, the first contact I had with the Iranian church was when Bishop Hike, the last martyred bishop, died. And I was heading the evangelical churches in the United Kingdom, a job I had for some 14 years. And I was... Uh, grabbed by the Yegnazars and asked if I would do the memorial service in London. So I had the incredible privilege of doing the memorial service for Bishop Hike, the, the martyred bishop. A few years later, I was in Iran, and there was Bishop Edward, his successor. And we traveled together and worked together. And bishop Edward told me a story that will blow your minds. Do you want to have your minds blown? He talked about how they trained new believers. What they would do is they would say to a new believer, I uh, want you to go to the church, get the church bus, drive it to this particular village, load it with Bibles, and then sell the Bibles. So at five in the morning, these two new believers are off church bus. They've filled it up with Bibles, and they're getting ready to drive off. They drive off. And the streets are empty. Now, I know the streets of Tehran at five in the morning. I've been picked up by the secret police a couple of hours before that. Um, I know how dangerous it is. These believers are driving off. And as they drive to the outskirts of Tehran, they suddenly realize that they don't know the road to go to this village. So they think, well, we'll stop the vehicle. We'll ask someone and get directions and... There was, of course, no one on the streets. That's when the steering wheel jammed. And it jammed, so they were forced to take a right-hand turn. They took a right-hand turn, and there's a guy standing on the street corner. They think, ah, glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We'll stop the car. We'll stop the van. We'll, we'll get out. We'll find directions to the village. Then we'll fix the steering wheel, and we'll get going. 
So they go up to the guy, and he takes one look at them and says, you got Bibles. We're looking for the village of Sosa. You got Bibles. But you could be secret. Yeah, I could be, but I'm not, and you got Bibles. They said, what do you mean? He said, I pray God for Bible, for village. God say, you come to Iran, five in morning. You stand on street corner, you wait, I send Bibles. Now, you may say, well, why do you believe this stuff? Oh, come on. I have worked with the Iranians for too many years to have any doubt at all. I mean, the, the Lord just meets them with such boring regularity. It's almost a no story, certainly a no brainer. This guy, they said, well, we, we do want the road to so and so. He said, Yeah, but you've got Bibles. They said, Yeah. He said, Good, I got life savings. Pulled out the equivalent of about 60 bucks. They gave him every Bible they'd got in the van. He put them on his shoulder and walked off into the morning to take the Bible back to his village. They got back in the vehicle. They didn't need to go to the village anymore. They had got any Bibles left to sell. So they went back to the church. How did they do that? Well, the steering wheel wasn't jammed anymore. It's never jammed since. That's just how God works. My Jesus has it all under control. I can tell it. Now, we're, you're going to have to let me go a little slower because there's stuff I'm not allowed to tell you. Is that all right? Um, my wife was in an unknown country up by the Russian borders and we brought out female Iranian believers. That I'm allowed to say, as long as I don't tell you where. And they were to be trained so they could go back in and bring people to Jesus and lead churches, okay? Uh, and Ruth loves doing this kind of stuff. So she was there doing this. And what happened was, um, well, basically, it was all going well until they got onto the subject of forgiveness. Because one of the girls uh, says, I can't forgive. How can I forgive? I was 16, they wanted a, a car. So he sold me for 700 bucks to get a car. Sold me to this old guy to be his wife. The old guy bored of me after a few months and sent me back. When I got back, they didn't want me to go back home. So they sent me on the streets and I turned to drugs and prostitution. Ultimately, she met Jesus. But she never could quite get around to forgiving those who direct her life. One of the things that had also happened to her was she contracted cancer badly. She had a huge tumor under her arm and a variety of other tumors. Now, Guys, you're just going to have to let your imaginations lie fallow at this. She suddenly announces in one of the sessions, I'm ready to forgive. And so, <laughs> Ruth says, 
Well, we all got around her and prayed for her. And she forgave. And that's when the miracle started. Because then she looks under her arm and the tumor's not there anymore. So she exposes her breasts and starts asking the women present to check for the presence of tumors in her breasts. That Ruth's reaction to that is, I couldn't do it. <laughs> she said, I, I had to say, I'm British. We don't do this kind of thing. <laughs> and it was an amazing miracle. And this woman sends home. Now, everyone who comes to these things is under a false name. So that if they are picked up, they can't reveal who they were with. Uh, but this girl gets home. And back in Iran, goes to the doctors. And of course, it's uh, healed by means unknown. Because the tumors are gone. Because she forgave and Jesus met her. You see, it's really quite simple. When you're flat on your face, and you're blind, and you don't know where you're going, the Lord sends people to help you, to walk with him. And what happens for Saul of Tarsus is he ends up being let down in a basket from a city wall. I'd love to have stood at the bottom and looked up and said, excuse me, shh, excuse me, shh. Aren't you Saul of Tarsus? Yes. Aren't you the one who was coming to take Christians bound to Jerusalem? Shh, yes, I'm afraid so. And didn't God meet you on the road? Hallelujah, yes. And aren't you now going to be the apostle to the Gentiles? So I gather, yes. Well, what are you doing up there in a basket? Well, I was sent, and I went, and I've been put. It is so easy if you want to change your world. It is so easy if you want this church to do the unthinkable. It is so easy if you want the amazing to happen. It just takes you being flat on your face in surrender. It just takes you being blinded and not knowing where you're going and having no control over your destiny and your future. It just takes you looking to the help and support of one another and together building the kingdom. And it just takes you being ready to be sent and to go and to be put however God wants you. And next week, Ruth and I will be surrounded by Iranians. But we need to get a hold of that here in the States. Back in my homeland of Western Europe, we need to understand that because we don't. Because we actually can live with ourselves in a country that denies refuge for the oppressed, that refuses to stand for the persecuted, that lives in pride and arrogance, thinking that by what we do, we're earning our way into heaven, and doesn't realize that God wants us flat on our face, going blind, standing for one another, and being obedient. We'll finish with the British story. There was a, a young student pianist 
And, uh, an impresario really liked this young guy. And so he hired a British concert hall for a night in London, filled it with people, and gave it to the young student pianist to play. The young man was overwhelmed because the British love their concert halls. But he sat at the piano and played Bach and played out of his skin. When he finished, the British forgot they were British. And they were overwhelmed with enthusiasm. Not very English. They stood. They clapped. They cheered. Some of them even stomped their feet. The green room at the back, fantastic, and said to the young student pianist, brilliant, incredible, fantastic, tremendous, go and play an encore. The young man said, no. The impresario said, but they're standing for you. This whole concert hall full of people are standing for you. Why won't you play an encore? He said, because they're not all standing. Up in the balcony, about three rows from the back, on the end, there's an old guy. He's sitting. If he was standing, I'd play an encore, but he's sitting, no encore. The impresario said, well, it's just one person. He said, yeah, but that's my teacher. If he was standing, I'd play an encore. He's sitting, no encore. 2,000 years ago, because we end where we started, there was a man named Stephen who died, was watching. But on that occasion, Jesus wasn't sitting. He was standing. Scripture says so. And as he stood for someone who lived for him and was dying for him. Stephen's face shone. as he went to be with his Lord. All I want with my life, before I go to glory, is I want to be part of a church that gets Jesus on his feet. I want to be part of a church that gets Jesus standing. I want to be one of those for whom Jesus stands, not because of what I'm doing for him, but because of what he's doing through me. And I think it's time we stop messing about with this faith that we profess. It's time we got flat on our faces and our heads to one another and helped each other. And it's time we actually got Jesus standing to welcome us home. And it's time that we did that because of our obedience, not because of our flashiness, or displaying our giftedness. It's time we got Jesus standing. The one thing I want from my life, I want, when I get home, the Lord to be standing to say, well done, you're a good and faithful servant. Welcome home. I want to ask you something. Very simple. Are you flat on your face? In surrender. Are you walking blind, not knowing what on earth the future is going to hold? Are you hanging on to each other that you may get there together?
Oh, and by the way, are you doing it in obedience to him? Expecting that when you get that you might get hold of some of the books. I hope you'll understand how grateful Susie and I are for being able to be with you. I'd value your prayers over the next five, six weeks that Ruth and I have in Turkey. But may God be with you as a church. Go and change a little bit of your world for Jesus. Amen. For more information about this or other media resources, please visit our website at world-impactministries.com. Thanks for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Our prayer is that you are encouraged and strengthened by this message.